I'm Dr. Jack West from City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at islc.org under the news heading. I'm here with Dr. Corey Langer, who's Director of Thoracic Oncology and Professor of Medicine at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania in uh, Philadelphia. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Uh, You were very instrumental in my start of uh, thoracic oncology. (laughs) I remember you giving an initial presentation summarizing the management of lung cancer, which could be done in an hour. Uh, and uh, and giving about a two and a half page handout that I used to carry with me <laughs> for a long time as my cheat sheet. Um, and the world has evolved since then uh, when everything in thoracic oncology could be summarized in two and a half pages. Now the NCCN guidelines for non-small cell are 225 pages. It has become uh, a wildly more complex field. And I, I think one of my my first question is, when you think about how much things have changed, uh, do you need to now be a thoracic specialist to do uh, to do lung cancer management? Or you know, how how is it feasible for people to get that level of care uh, now when it's no longer chemo doublet for everybody, but uh, splintered into all these different corners of the algorithm? You're very kind for uh, telling me how uh, instrumental I was in your uh, early uh, emergence as probably one of the leading thoracic oncologists in the world, not just the country. I remember those days. Um, frankly, I, to get the full hour in, I, I think I had to embellish what we had. Uh, the whole talk could have probably been done in uh, 15 minutes if I had just pared it down. And I, I, it wasn't that long ago. It was uh, less than 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, the cusp of the new millennia. And we were debating the fine nuances of taxane dosing and whether we should give carbo or an AUC of five or six or seven and a half. Questions that seem totally nonsensical now in the current context. So uh, (laughs) in a way, I sort of long for the simplicity of that era, but uh, things have grown incredibly complicated. And to be blunt, I think it's my charge and frankly your charge, the charge of uh, thoracic medical oncologists to distill it into something that's digestible. Mm -hmm. Uh, That can be still summarized on a page or two without going into exhaustive uh, detail. And I think there's a way to do that. But um, with press releases coming now, not just monthly, but almost weekly, new studies, many of which are frankly positive and far more positive than we had seen in the past, it's tough to keep up. And it's not just tough for the community oncologists, it's tough for us as thoracic oncologists. So there are papers now that are presented that would have been plenary sessions at ASCO that are buried in uh, separate sessions at ESMO or other. Uh, the, the average oncologist doesn't go to these meetings. Uh, they're far too busy. Frankly, the average thoracic oncologist is unable to attend all these meetings. So. Um, distilling this so that it's easily assimilated and uh, uh, understandable, I think, is uh, uh, one of our major duties uh, and 
uh, yet another unmet need. I would say that the current therapeutic landscape really breaks down into those who have some sort of oncogenic driver, and obviously EGFR and ALK lead the list there, and those who are what we call wild type. And they're the wild type paradigm, at least for now, is not so complicated. I mean, uh, uh, PDL1 is an imperfect marker as it is, still descent, dis distinguishes between those who can get single agent immunotherapy and those who really need combinations. Uh, the final common pathway, sadly, for virtually every patient who's on an uh, oral agent, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, is still chemotherapy. Uh, and trying to figure out which combination to use, whether it's feasible to add immunotherapy to that or um, uh, continue with uh, angiogenesis inhibition, that too needs to be clearly spelled out. Uh, and uh, as much information as we have, there's still data-free zones, and that's one of them. I want to ask about one of the areas that I think is not data-free, but still data-poor, and that is the setting of performance status two, marginal performance status, elderly patients. This has been one of your leading causes for a long time. You've done a lot of this research, but and it's better than it was 15 or 20 years ago, but I still feel like we are many steps behind. So uh, now where, where do you think we are? How much progress have we made and how much is there still to do? There's still a lot to do for the, uh, uh, this, what I call the special populations. And they're, they're not small niches. Uh, PS2 is probably 30 to 40% of our patient uh, population. And although oncogenic drivers are clearly a bit more common in younger individuals, particularly ALK, uh, the median age of diagnosis for lung cancer in this country is still about 70. And uh, you look at clinical trials, uh, the representation of those uh, 70 years of age and older remains quite poor. It's not uh, proportional to the population. And virtually all of these trials, uh, with rare exception, actively exclude anyone who is PS2. Um, Certainly, that's been liberalized a bit with uh, targeted therapy, but for the vast majority of patients, the, the role of immunotherapy in particular in that population is uh, unclear, and I would agree it is a data-free zone or virtually a data-free zone. I think earlier on in my career, I made the mistake of thinking that drugs might get approved in this population, that we could do separate randomized trials really looking at uh, new approaches or new agents, and I've since learned, it took a long time, um, uh, you have to look uh, at papers I've produced in the last five to seven years, none are PS2. Mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't mean they shouldn't be done, they need to be done, but it is not a conduit for drug approval. And we really need, um, we need to test these agents and the populations that can tolerate them first, that we know uh, uh, where they stand the strongest chance of uh, showing a benefit, and then actively pursue the populations that uh, have been neglected by the clinical trials. Immunotherapy trials, not just PS2, it's folks with uh, remote autoimmune conditions that uh, seem to automatically disqualify them from uh, enrollment. So there's yet another uh, population. We think, oh, those are, those are rare. Well, they're not so rare. No. Uh, it's like a red bad, it's a scarlet letter. There's some uh, notation on the chart that somebody had rheumatoid arthritis, but you can't even find the documentation, yet that diagnosis haunts the patient 
they can't go on the clinical trial. Uh, so we really need to separately test prospectively these regimens in these populations, possibly adjust the doses or do certain dose finding studies, but not necessarily do phase three studies. I think it's incumbent on us to do carefully crafted uh, phase two or maybe randomized phase two trials that look at both toxicity and quality of life. And uh, to be frank, industry is not interested in this. Uh, they want to get their drugs approved. They want to make maximum profit. And they have made it quite clear to me uh, that uh, uh, pursuing these populations uh, is not in their interest, that they, uh, they're worried about uh, enhanced toxicity and that somehow that toxicity will stigmatize their agent or taint their drug. I encountered this uh, with conventional chemotherapy with pemetrexib, uh, which as you know is the package insert stipulates a creatinine clearance of 45, which mm -hmm. frankly we all violate. We fudge it down to the high 30s or low 40s, but there's never been uh, properly conducted studies of PEM in the sort of moderate renal impairment group between 30 and 45. So I approached uh, Lily at one point and said, I, we need to do a study in this population. And in no uncertain terms, they made it clear that they did not want to do that. Now, I'm, I'm a little surprised just because I would think that, uh, as you said, PS2 patients are a large portion of the patients who are out there in the community. It's a, it's a huge fraction. And so, Certainly not as the first inroad, but maybe to after you've already gotten an agent on the market, some experience with it, you'd want to broaden that that uh, comfort level because you know, there's still plenty of uh, patients who are on the sidelines, uh, not necessarily given the opportunity to to uh, pursue this because of concerns that they don't qualify like a you. trial. I absolutely agree with you, but with rare exception, virtually all the. Uh, more recent trials in P that have included PS2 of the elderly have been done by cooperative groups. Um, case in point, for instance, by today's standards, a very conventional, if you will, quotidian uh, trial was the uh, French effort that compared weekly taxane and carbo to ostensibly the former standard single-agent gemcitabine and venorolbine. It was strictly done uh, by the French equivalent of the NCI. It was an excellent trial industry had no interest in it. Uh, these are generic drugs. Uh, the study addressed incredibly important questions that are crucial to our daily lives as oncologists, but there was no monetary gain uh, for industry in that regard. I agree with you. I think that's still important. Uh, these drugs, uh, as industry likes to point out, have a long life cycle left, uh, mm -hmm. uh, 17 years still, or mm -hmm. something like that. It's sort of like a cicada, I guess. Uh, but uh, so it frankly behooves the, uh, those who are making the immunotherapy in particular, and there's so many companies that are involved, to actively pursue these populations. But they're so actively engaged still in um, frontline and uh, neoadjuvant studies, and all of those are equally important. But uh, sadly, the PS2 and the elderly uh, populations are continue to be sidelined by this. So. This is really a charge for academia. Another area that you've done a lot of work in is small cell. Uh, there, the pace of progress hasn't been as dizzying to keep up with, but uh, we have seen a positive trial in Empower 133 adding atezolizumab to chemotherapy with carbo and atoposide. 
Uh, where were you say? Where would you say we are now in terms of small cell? Is this uh, we finally moved the needle meaningfully for the first time in twenty some years? Is this uh, not enough? The small cell is still an entity that we could summarize on a half page, mm -hmm. and probably if we needed to, could uh, do the entire talk in ten minutes, uh, even with some of the newer data. Um, it's sort of sad. Uh, I finished my fellowship in 87. Um, the standard treatment at that point was etoposide and platinum. And it was the same, really, until last year, until 2018. 30-year stretch where we hadn't moved the needle at all. And uh, it really seemed very little progress in median survival or long-term survival. We had learned certain things about radiation, how to give it, when to give it. That concurrent was better than sequential. We certainly um, learned that PCI had a benefit, but it took a meta-analysis of many otherwise ostensibly negative trials to actually move the needle there. But these were small baby steps. And I think in the context of some of the major gains we've seen in non-small cell, uh, with hazard ratios in some of these phase three studies dipping below 0.6 and even 0.5, the progress we've seen with uh, immunotherapy, specifically with the Tezo uh, Empower 133, is significant, but clearly it's still a modest improvement. Median survival is improved by about two months. Uh, it's not clear just how much better long-term survival is going to be. The study is still fairly early. Um, there have been other trials in the past that nearly equaled that improvement in median survival, but the p-value wasn't there, the hazard ratio wasn't there, and the drugs weren't approved. So it's a statistically significant, clinically meaningful, but very modest improvement in overall survival. And I think we really need to apply the lessons we've learned in non-small cell to small cell. Um, particularly in limited disease, uh, um, looking at these agents after chemoradiation and probably even more importantly during chemoradiation. There, uh, if a specific trial is uh, any harbinger of the future, we may see major headway in the curable population. Maybe not, but certainly worth a shot. Uh, some of the other immunotherapy trials uh, have been major disappointments. I truly bet on Ipinevo. Uh, moving the bar in uh, the maintenance setting. We haven't seen the actual results, but we have seen the all-important press release uh, <laughs> uh, that uh, indicated it uh, did not meet its endpoint. And then uh, randomized trials, of, uh, NEVO versus that awful standard Topo-TCAN. Uh, again, not positive. Uh, so do you, do you think that uh there's a meaningful difference among these agents that's explaining that one is significantly better, or is it more likely to be just the timing or the, the patient selection issues? I'd be shocked if there was a substantial difference between uh, Atezo, which of course now has pretty much grabbed the spotlight on small cell, and some of the other uh, PD-1 and PDL one inhibitors. Uh, we're eagerly awaiting the results of the analogous PEMBRO clinical trial. I think it'll probably be available in the second quarter, perhaps, of 2019, and uh, it remain to be seen. Um, I'm betting that we'll see at least the same improvement. But if prior studies in non-small cell are any indication, 
would I be terribly surprised if we saw an even greater improvement? No. Okay. Uh, that, again, that's pure speculation. I was sort of surprised that Nevo didn't do as well as it had. Um, I st I'm still convinced there's a niche population out there that are truly benefited by these agents, maybe not by Nevo alone, but by um, uh, checkpoint combinations. And personally, I've treated folks with uh, Ipinevo, with CTLA-4 and PD-1 inhibition concurrently, and I've seen a couple of CRs. I mean, you do not see that with topo -tican. You don't see that with uh, reintroducing a platinum doublet after a certain time point. Now, granted, this is rare, but there's clearly a population out there that's going to benefit. Mm -hmm. And uh, it rises above the level of anecdote. Right now, it is anecdotal, but it's, there, it's, it's not a huge proportion, probably no higher than 10%, maybe 12 or 15%. So, so I mean, that could get lost in the noise of a of that's, that's trial. That's what I fear. Yeah. And uh, so the overall study may have been negative, and maybe there's a tail out there that we haven't seen yet. And then, frankly, we don't have enough time. Uh, you know, insufficient time has actually passed to uh, identify these folks. But then we'd, we'd clearly need to be better at figuring out which patients are the beneficiaries. And if uh, the EMPOWER trial is any indication, it doesn't look like PDL one or TMB are the uh, answers to that. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I leave it to folks who uh, are true translationalists uh, to, to, to figure that out for me. Meanwhile, I'll provide the patients, I'll do the trials, and I'll certainly send them as much tissue and blood as they need. <laughs> so let's close by talking about chemoimmunotherapy. Of course, you uh, were a leader in uh, the, uh, in the uh, Keynote 21G uh, phase two trial that led to the approval wider adoption after the uh, presentation and publication of the phase three, largely same trial, uh, uh, Keynote 189, that's now a clear standard of care as is for the squamous population, uh, the Keynote 407 with a different uh, carbotaxane and Pembro combination. So that is widely used. Uh, is there, in your estimation, some uh, very clearly favorable interaction, or could it be more just the access that, you know, the fact is even with crossover, that crossover is in the range of 50% on the trials that's, oh, it, so, you know, you can clarify. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I just don't know how much of it's just the additive effect of everyone getting access to uh, two shots on goal instead of just one versus, uh, you know, so is it, is it, important that they're given concurrently. I think it's very important that they're given concurrently. And uh, to be honest, uh, when we embarked on the uh, O21G and um, I guess to a lesser extent 189, we already knew the results of O21G, um, I wasn't terribly convinced that it would be that important. Uh, but the proof is in the pudding. And uh, to have a hazard ratio of about 0.5, in thoracic oncology is unprecedented. I can't think of any other trials that have really uh, done that well. In an unselected uh, population. Totally unselected. Crossover, so the study design, I think, is really um, a template for additional studies. Not all were designed this way. It was, they kept the question simple. Does immunotherapy, in this case PEMBRO, add to outcome that we typically see with chemo? They did not try to in, uh, introduce a third arm or additional questions into the uh, uh, clinical trial. 
to uh, counter the uh, claim that uh, lack of access to the drug uh, uh, in the second line would uh, be the reason for the survival improvement. They built in the crossover. Uh, O21G, actually about 75% of those who are eligible went on to immunotherapy. It wasn't necessarily PEMBRO on uh, trial, but it was some sort of immunotherapy. I thought in the and phase threes it was more like 50%. Phase three is lower yeah. in the intent to treat. But again, not everybody in the control arm has actually failed. So the uh, numbers are still the majority have okay. uh, gone on to, uh, uh, cro have crossed over in the control group. We need to see the results in that population. I don't think that has actually been presented yet. Or mm -hmm. maybe you've seen something uh, no. preliminarily, but hopefully at ASCO this year, one of the many venues, whether it's World Lung or ESMO, that uh, those data will be shown. Um, the uh, uh, study design, uh, a lot of folks criticized uh, both O21G and 189. Why include folks that didn't have PDL1 expression when you had an approval for PEMBRO in the second line in those who were PDL1 positive? But it, it seemed quite reasonable uh, to at least explore that. And uh, with the major improvement in PFS and frankly, an improvement in OS that uh, emerged only over time in O21G. If you remember the original presentation I made at ESMO, it's only two years ago, uh, there wasn't any separation of the curves. Uh, there was something like 75% alive at one year in the, the triplet arm and 72% alive in the control arm with uh, PEM carbo. But uh, over time, we can question whether so many analyses are statistically kosher, but the p-value dropped from 0.39 to 0.13 to 0.05 to 0.03 to 0.015. I mean, the curves just keep diverging, and this is despite, again, crossover built into the trial. So um, the FDA, of course, approved that combination, um, very controversial at the time. There yeah. was no, we had not seen the uh, phase three data. Uh, we had, uh, we certainly didn't have the survival data. Uh, that uh, divergence in the curves had not yet been appreciated. It was strictly on response rate, uh, which was double. It was nearly 60% versus about 28, 30%. So 189 um, was confirmatory, uh, incredibly confirmatory, but it, 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 the results weren't anywhere near what we had seen in O21G. Uh, response rate was under 50% overall. Mm -hmm. um, the control arm, Perform worse than it had in O21G. The response rate was only about 18 or 20 percent. PFS was 8.9 versus 4.8 months, and it was back into the realm of clinical reality. Still, it was major improvement, and uh, median survival hadn't been reached versus 11.7 months. You and I can cite recent studies, at least in North America, where chemo alone or chemo plus BEV had at least 13 or 14 months, not 11.7. So, uh, but still, the separation in the curves uh, is unquestionable. Uh, the benefits over time, to some extent, we're seeing plateaus uh, uh, at about a year and a half or two years, although there's still a decrement in uh, survival over time that uh, wasn't truly appreciated in O21G. So it, it's completely changed our therapeutic approach. I think the controversy now, and this is really part of the dilemma that exists, uh, is, uh, which patients do you give this to? Um, to yeah, strictly... if I can can ask, I think as, as a last question here, we have kind of competing phase three trial standards of, particularly for the high PDL one patients, you'd be completely reasonable to give pembrolizumab monotherapy. Absolutely, but 
the combination of you know of chemo immunotherapy in both of the Keynote 189 trials with uh, cis or carbo pem pembro for 189 or carbo taxane pembro for uh, Keynote 407 in the squames that looked good too. Uh, so, uh, do you have a a general strategy for everybody, or do you individualize? I individualize. It's a clinical decision right now. So if uh, Somebody is younger, fairly hardy, otherwise minimal comorbidity with an aggressive disease burden, a high metastatic burden as opposed to mutation burden. Um, and I figure I have one shot on goal, they'll get the triplet. Older, frailer, um, lowish metastatic burden, not terribly symptomatic, uh, almost definitely the, the single agent. Well, we'll ultimately have the answer. And again, this is a cooperative group question. Industry yeah. isn't interested. Um, Merck wins either way. Pembro's in both arms. Uh, so uh, ECOG and the uh, and SWAG together are mounting the trial that absolutely needs to be done, comparing single-agent Pembro to the triplet. My major criticism of that trial, at least in the last iteration, is it includes the 1 to 49% right. group. But it, I think at least we'll be able to look at that by subsets and, and clarify what I think we need to see, which is that the 1 to 49s are not the same patients as the high... Absolutely not, and my only fear is that the trial needs to be separately powered for the entire group and also for the 50% and higher. Mm -hmm. Offhand, I don't know if that's the case. It would be, I'll be blunt, clinical trial malpractice if it wasn't powered for the 50% or higher. You'll be blunt, okay. <laughs> Excellent, <laughs> I would expect nothing less. But anyway, thank you so much for taking the time, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Visit the news section on IASLC.org for more lung cancer considered podcasts. And please like your favorite episodes on SoundCloud and share them with your friends and colleagues. This is Dr. Jack West. Until next time.